Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 153rd videocast, 143rd podcast for the week ending September 22nd, 2022. Uh, we're going to quickly do the media. I want to thank um, Hannah Doba, Ali Thompson, Ellie Park, Lisa Farkas, and Joe Cole for having me on Cheddar on Friday, and want to thank... Um, Right here, uh, Hannah Viviers, Samuel Kantai, and Lucia Moki for having me on CGTN Africa on Tuesday. So we'll go into those a little bit later. Uh, also want to thank Ellen Chang for including me in her article on thestreet.com about tech and the IPO markets and when they're going to clear as well as Devik Jain for including me in his article on Reuters yesterday after the Fed announcement. So um, I want to start with a little bit, uh, one of the Ask Me Anything questions this week, and we'll do the rest at the end. Uh, but JT Investor sent this note, which I'm sure is all on your mind. Uh, Tom, your latest update clearly expresses a concern about the Fed's guidance and the increasing potential for a hard landing. It seems like your outlook has gotten significantly more negative after receiving the last Fed guidance yesterday. Could you please elaborate on your latest thinking on where markets are heading for uh, 4Q and if you're changing anything in your investment strategy? Thank you for being a voice of clarity for your followers. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I would say this, JT. We're going to walk through the facts because um, on the face of it, what they said yesterday was very negative. Uh, however, when I look dispassionately at all of the data, and we're going to go through some of the things that I look at on a regular basis, uh, I can't put my finger on what is going to turn this back around and turn it back around abruptly into year end. Uh, but I can point to the fact that uh, everything's lined up that that should be the case. So maybe we'll have some hints as to what turns it around after such hawkish talk and kind of reckless guidance. Um, and it may be something that they can't even control uh, and something that we don't know that we don't know. But, you know, I've, I've been to this movie too many times before to know that when things become this acute, something always comes out of the blue uh, and turns the sentiment uh, and the tide very, very quickly and catches a lot of people off sides. Because there's no one right now on Wall Street or elsewhere on TV or, or anywhere else that's credible uh, that is, has a positive outlook. Everyone has all, all gotten to one side of the boat, and we're going to dissect that, largely justifiably so in many cases. Uh, but that's not how you make your money betting with consensus uh, and as a matter of fact, we're going to get to a few uh, quotes of the week here from Ray Dalio. Uh, first one here I have is the average man tends to buy high and sell low. Why is that? Why, what, you know, if everyone knows you should buy low and sell high, why does everyone buy high and sell low? And the answer is people buy when everyone else is doing it. It's much easier. As a matter of fact, I was speaking to a reporter today and she said that her friend wanted to buy a house because everyone was buying houses. And I said, I, I can't even un begin to understand that logic of wanting to buy because everyone else is, is buy. Uh, you know, it's, it, for me, it's just the opposite. When everyone's buying something, I'm like, okay, uh, that, it's not the time for that. Uh, what can we look at that's high quality, that's out of favor? It's just, it, it's literally in my DNA. 
but I, I think the reason people do that is they buy when there's euphoria, like let's call it uh, December of last year in some of those tech stocks and ARC innovation and all that stuff. And then they sell in periods like now when everything looks grim uh, and they're just saying, I can't take any more pain and they just puke at the absolute wrong time and they do that over and over and over and it's just i guess it's just human nature uh is the answer to the question the other thing that ray says is to make money in the markets you have to think independently and you have to be humble there are very few independent thinkers in this business uh and to do that well you have to be humble uh in those periods where it just takes time for the thesis to play out and you just have to stick with it most people just bail they sell out they don't talk about it anymore they go on to the next uh next uh, consensus idea et cetera et cetera et cetera and they never have any outperformance at any periods in their career uh and um they're just basically closet indexers so you know during periods when it's tough when it's just not moving uh at all and you're kind of in this hold holding pattern you just have to be humble. You just have to be, bide your time. You just have to know that all great fortunes have been made by biding your time in periods when no one else wanted to be there. Uh, and then sure enough, uh, when everyone wants to be there, that's when you start to lay off the assets. So um, I, I, I thought these were timely and, and correct. And then finally, in order to be successful, you're betting against the consensus and you have to be right. And for most of the bets, uh, and I've looked, looked throughout my career, it, it's, for me, it's always just been a, a question of time arbitrage. The theses always play out. It's just a question of time. Sometimes they play out in months. Sometimes it takes a few years. But invariably, if you're buying high-quality assets when they're marked down, uh, you're going to make multi-baggers over time. Uh, the, and speaking of multi-baggers, the other guy uh, sent me a question, uh, Michael Chu. Hi, Tom. Great podcast. I hope the golf will soon be at, on the same level as your hedge fund tips. Uh, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's getting there. I, the driver has become a machine. I'm hitting it straight and I'm hitting it long. I've got this thing called Acros where you put these uh, things in the back of your club and it tracks every single shot, every single club, you know, greens and regulation, ch tells you where your, you know, strokes gained, et cetera fully analytical the driver i'm gaining like two and a half strokes every round like that you know i'm just that's working uh gotta get uh chipping's getting better putting's getting better uh so it, it's it's coming together uh you can look up my my handicap and scores on uh, gin g-h-i-n uh for all of you golfers and and uh you can tell me if you think the trend is in in the right direction but leaving that aside um when uh I wanted to ask, okay, I'm not in the trade. I'm a home investor, but don't have a strategy in taking profits. And I watch them disappear. I always hear you talk about multi-baggers. If I have a company I really like, is it simply offload some and not watch them over the very long-term 10 years? Um, I'm thinking how much the likes of Microsoft has grown over such a period. Any related podcast articles? Okay, so... Uh, I always know when I'm getting out before I get in. Um, so, and that comes from doing deep fundamental analysis. So I would say, first and foremost, read The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. Start there. See if you have the capacity, aptitude, and interest to even uh, develop those skills, to have that type of uh, conviction in the things that you invest in. Then read all the Buffett annual letters then read security analysis, and then from there you'll know if you want to spend your time doing that or if you just want to lay it off uh, and outsource it to someone else. Um, so for me, 
you know, for instance, for like Cooper Standard, I know I'm not going to telegraph to the world when I'm getting out, but I know where we're going to get out of the first third of the stock. I know where we're going to get out of the second third of the stock. And I know where we're going to hold uh, probably for many, many years. And the reason is, is that um, you have to recognize that anything can happen. But when you have a clarity around intrinsic value, um, I never get fully into a stock all in one tranche and I never get fully out of a stock all in one tranche. If I say XYZ is worth $150 a share, um, I'm not going to say I won't sell a share at $149.50 and be rigid. I'll probably take off, you know, you know, if the stock's at five bucks or 10 bucks, I'll probably take off, uh, you know, a third, you know, maybe, at, at some level that I think is like the low end of their historic multiple range and a, and a big haircut on what I think their earnings power is. Then I'll take the second third off at kind of a normalized multiple with normalized realistic earnings. And then I'll take the third off uh, with, you know, complete upside potential and let that run for a while and let time work in my advantage, particularly if it's a company that compounds capital on an internal basis at a uh, above market rate of return. Uh, why, why would I let that go? So, uh, and, and that comes to knowing how to do fin f fundamental analysis. If you're just buying stocks and hoping that they go up, you should just, you know, outsource it or develop your skills more because you never start a battle before you know you have a game plan and you have things mapped out uh, and you consider all possible contingencies. What will you do if this happens? What will you do if that happens, et cetera? And you saw that in Russia. I mean, you know, uh, Putin underestimated uh, you know, NATO's come to defense and funding Ukraine with, uh, with weaponry, with uh, funding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why this has gone on. And I think that, by the way, that could be one of those white swans where you get into winter, Europe and uh, Ukraine and everyone, uh, they start to get a little bit antsy about energy prices and maybe that forces a negotiation. Uh, Putin's weak. He started this... Um, uh, draft basically, and now all these Russian men are getting out of the countries. The moms are, are, you know, not supportive because all the body bags are coming home. So there are a lot of things in flux that could lead to some type of negotiated settlement. We'll see this vote in the separatist region, how that plays out. Uh, but you know, there's no upside priced in that anything could go right over there, uh, realistically so. But that's often when things, you know, happen that you can't understand. Um, so, you know, just looking at, and we've gone through these a few times, but it goes without saying, um, you know, these, these become at levels where you get paid to take the other side. You know, the 10-day put call ratio is at an extreme. Everyone's buying insurance when the house is already burned down. Uh, NYSE volume index, again, this is areas where you want to be a buyer. Same thing with NDX, 1% EMA of the advanced decline ratio. I mean, this is, you know, these are real extremes uh, if you go back many years. I mean, this is worse than the pandemic. Uh, and it's, you know, we have a, like a growth problem, 2015, 2016. I mean, these are all levels where if you bought, you made huge money over the next few years. Now you could say, well, this time is different because the Fed is, is, uh, is tightening, et cetera. But if you recall, the tightening cycle was starting in earnest here in early 2016, the last time you got signals like this. Um, and, um, and that's the result you got. So, uh, over and over what we're seeing is indications that, um,
things are at an extreme and it's time to buy it. And that's often the hardest time because like literally I can find nothing positive in, in any of the media, in any of the commentators, uh, in any of the, the, uh, the press conferences uh, this week, et cetera, that makes you want to be a buyer. And, you know, the last time I had this type of feeling and kind of this distaste knowing it was time to be a buyer uh, but not being able to point to any cat thing that was going to catalyze it, but just knowing that based on all the metrics we look at, if you buy, you get paid. If you sell, you, you lose, uh, was June. Okay. And all these things were pointing to the exact same direction in June when people were this pessimistic, you know, here's the PMO by all, like I said, this can, this can stretch on a little bit, but invariably it always goes back up and, and uh, that pays well by DJI. So maybe we go down and test the lows. I wasn't in that camp. It looks like we may be headed in that direction, but you still got about, uh, you know, three and a half percent to get there. We'll see the Fed is speaking tomorrow. If he kind of um, signals any flexibility. I mean, what, what I would simply say is we did three emergency hikes, 75, 75, 75, uh, on the basis where inflation numbers were this month, we're going to go to 4.6. Uh, but if, if the data changes in the next two months where we have to remain flexible, we were wrong about our estimates every single meeting for the last two years. So we have to retain enough humility to say, if the, if the facts change, we'll change our minds. That's all he really needs to communicate. What he communicated yesterday was more like the December, it's on autopilot, that's where we're going, highway to hell, and that's when you know Mnuchin had to come in and bail him out. Unfortunately, Mnuchin is no longer working in uh, this administration, so you know maybe you have Janet Yellen, who was a, a solid Fed pres, but um, Fed chairwoman, but um, that that's kind of where it is. So we'll see if we get any kind of walk back in terms of flexibility. If we don't, um, you know, at these levels, though, it's really hard. You're just out of sellers. You know, look at this bullish percent NASDAQ composite. Uh, this is a percent on point and figure buy signals. We don't use point and figure, but we do use this to get a sense of different sectors. And, you know, you're at levels where you wanted to be buying. And these were extreme situations. You know, the credit markets froze up in 2015 and 2016, the high yield credit market. Um, that was a much worse situation than we're facing today. Financials, same thing. So some of these could go down further before they bottom healthcare. But these are, these are getting towards extreme levels across the board uh, here on the technology sector. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's approaching uh, pandemic lows. Uh, it's worse than the uh, debt crisis in Europe in 2011. So you have to look at these things and say, if you're not a buyer at these level of extremes, why are you in the business and how are you ever going to outperform if you're not, if you're not stepping in when everyone's puking out? Uh, and that, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, materials, uh, same thing, NASDAQ. So some of these can go a little bit further. The bullish uh, percent real estate. It, I mean, this thing is completely washed out. People say, well, of course it's washed out. Rates are going up. But, uh, you know, real estate's been an inflation hedge. Uh, they can raise rents. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's, you've had these other periods, the beginning of the last tightening cycle, the middle of the last tightening cycle, same, same type of washout, and you got paid to buy it. Um, let's see. 
So we just go through those over and over and over. And then um, this is very interesting. So this was from MarketWatch, Barbara uh, Colmayer. She says, our call of the day comes from Julian Emanuel at Evercore ISI. He's the chief equity and quantitative strategist. They're a good shop. That's Ed Hyman's old shop. He's one, the, probably the best economist in the country. And uh, Emanuel tells clients in a note, uh, da, 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 da. The Fed could and should guide the markets on Wednesday that the uh, data dependency for the central banks November 1st to the second FOMC decision is zero to 75 basis points, not uh, 50 to 75. They didn't do that. Maybe they'll back it up tomorrow at the Fed quote unquote listens meeting uh, tomorrow. But uh, given that Fed will be assessing enormous tightening already in place and potential for messy midterm elections, the strategist thinks the dollar will continue to temper its strength. The dollar index is about up 1.3% in September after a blistering 2.6% gain. Uh, Evercore team offers up a list of dollar down denominators names that could outperform in the case of a dollar pullback. So they're, they're making a list of things to buy as the dollar weakens. And what they're pointing to is a technical signal called an RSI negative divergence, meaning the U.S. dollar has been going up while the uh, relative strength and the buying power has been weakening, and that usually converges with the instrument matching the, the relative strength, uh, and they're saying basically buying momentum is dying out. We agree. We get to that conclusion a different way. Um, so what he said is, which city strategists have described as one of the only places to hide. While the greenback is looking overvalued and a turning point in inevitable city says either global growth expectations need to turn or the Fed needs to pivot for that to happen. So, um, you know, the one thing that I covered on, I think it was Cheddar and also on CGT in Africa was that people are underestimating the amount of stimulus that has gone into China in the last six months. And now uh, COVID zero seems to be winding down. The country's reopening. You saw the economic data come in, uh, the recent numbers this week in August, much better than expected. Uh, you're seeing uh, uh, other anecdotes we're gonna cover, sea trip, huge amount of travel bookings, et cetera. So the consumer is coming back in China. And I think the world has just written off China. China has been an engine of growth historically. And um, as that country reopens, all the stimulus from November and March that I've been talking about is going to all come at once. And I, I think it's going to be abrupt. I think it's going to be massive. And that may effectively bail the world out of uh, a global recession. I mean, Europe, you know, you can't count on, on, on regions that are dependent on the kindness of strangers as it relates to energy. So Europe is still very vulnerable. But if I'm right about China, uh, that demand, uh, you know, could, could help Europe weather some things. And then if you get, you know, some type of lucky break with Ukraine, et cetera, something that's no one's expecting, uh, that would be a catalyst. But the point that I'm trying to make is I can't put my finger on what would turn things around from such gloominess uh, and bad guidance and bad decisions uh, other than when all these conditions lined up in the past with this extreme pessimism, selling pressure, positioning, etc., 
the pain trade was the, the other way. The pain trade became up because everyone was positioned for lower. Everyone sold out of their stocks. Everyone's had their margin calls, their crypto calls, their et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the people that traded on leverage. So the worst thing that can happen right now is some unexpected good news. No one is, is positioned for good news. Um, and it would catch people so off sides. And they're so negative right now that they wouldn't believe the first 8 to 10% move. Uh, and they would wait for a retest of lows that would never come. And that's the textbook case. Uh, and, um, and, and we'll see how that plays out. Looking at commodities, nothing's changed. I mean, you got this uh, blow off in the dollar because of the Fed. But, you know, this is the, the green line here. This is commercials. You know, if you can find an instance where they've been this short that it didn't eventually lead to a rollover, you know, last time here, a rollover here, it stopped going up and then eventually rolled over. All we need is for it to stop going up and your emerging markets are going to go bananas. Here, even you got the pullback here, pullback here, a huge correction here, a huge correction here, a huge correction. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's time arbitrage. You just have to be patient and humble. Uh, these things do eventually play out. So sometimes your best ideas play out in months. Sometimes they take a couple of years. But if you've got it right and there's a large enough margin of safety and there's a multi-bagger in the trade, whether it's months or years is immaterial, you'll get the outperformance over time. Um, and then you look at like the euro, which no one can say anything positive about because why? There's going to be this huge energy thing this winter and they're going to be in a great depression, et cetera, et cetera. Except, you know, the commercials are hedged uh, here. They, they're long. Uh, and every time they got that long, sooner or later, you got a huge, huge bounce or it stopped going down and a rally, stopped going down and rally, 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 huge rally. So could it go lower before it goes higher? Of course it can do that. But, I'm, you know, I just go through these things. and I just try to burden myself dispassionately. Like I'm not attached to any of these things. I just look at how does it behave in the past when the smart money are positioned in a certain way? And, you know, invariably, you know, the Japanese started defending the yen and they're having a little success. Well, commercials are positioned for that. Whether they're successful or not, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't be long the yen per se, but, you know, I also wouldn't be long the dollar. That's for sure. I, I would not be long the dollar at these lever levels after this move, even if it moves a little higher. Um, you know, I want to be in positioned in things, not short the dollar, but positioned in things that will benefit as the dollar stops going up, goes sideways, and even, God forbid, even goes down. And then emerging markets would be an absolute rocket ship, China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, you know, we're patient, we're humble, we're waiting, and um, these things inevitably play out over time. So we're not going to go through every single commodity, but the story is is positive. Now, what, what else could it be? The, C, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget um, said another jumbo Fed hike is poised to add $2.1 trillion to national debt, according to the CRFB. And that's what I've been saying. Every percentage point increase is about $285 billion a year. They're talking about $2 trillion added to the national debt over the next 10 years. And I think this narrative is going to start to build. And I think they have to be cognizant that 
uh, the debt to GDP ratio in 1981 when Volcker went crazy was nothing like it is today. They don't have that runway that Volcker had to raise it up to double digits to kill inflation overnight. They, in effect, need the exact opposite. They need inflation to run above trend, 3 to 5%, uh, on average over the next three to five years to get debt to GDP down to normalized levels uh, like they did post-World War II. So for everyone that keeps talking about you know, Jay Powell has Volcker's book on his desk. Like, who gives a sh- who cares, okay? That's, that's irrelevant. At some point, uh, this is going to be a huge factor. And by the way, in effect, if this narrative gets legs and people realize the impact of these uh, hikes on a country that has over 120% debt to GDP, uh, that could be the thing that drives the dollar down and drives the dollar down extremely quickly. Uh, in which case emerging markets will, will absolutely fly. So the, the narrative is starting. People are becoming more and more cognizant. They must be followers of my podcast <laughs> or just independent thinkers themselves. Uh, and, um, and we'll see how this plays out. But I think that's, that's what people are missing in that com- you know, simplistic comparison between now and 1981 and Volcker and all that stuff. The other thing is... Um, People often look at uh, retail investors being the dumb money. It hasn't been the case since the pandemic. As a matter of fact, institutions have been the ones selling in the hole consistently. And what we're seeing is they're doing the exact same thing again. Institutional investors flee stocks as inflation fears drive selling to its highest in 2022, while retail investors remain buyers overall. So they're dumping in the hole. And this is the exact same thing that was happening during the pandemic lows. Um, you saw huge puking out uh, from institutional investors and retailers were actually buying in the hole. And the same thing is happening right now. So uh, again, it's humility and time. And, and sure enough, these things work out. And when you measure enough of these indicators over time, you know when the odds are in your favor. Nothing's ever absolute. Otherwise, we could pinpoint it to the hour when it's going to change. But you know, when the weight of the evidence starts to point to things are at extreme and you can't put your finger on, well, what's going to possibly turn it around? Um, go to the weight of the evidence. Sure enough, something shows up and it's just like sentiment can change overnight. Uh, Ford indicated to, uh, this week that uh, they had a billion dollars of additional costs due to parts. Well, who's one of the major uh, beneficiaries of that? The index-based contracts from uh, Cooper Standard. So like I said, we're very pleased with what's happening with the business operations with Cooper Standard. The risk has been the risk since day one. Credit markets are totally closed right now. Rates going up is not helpful. Uh, But they are deleveraging their balance sheet like they did the sale of leasebacks. They said in the last quarter they're doing more of those. They've probably got $120 there. They're going to be cash flow positive this year. Probably do $40, $50 million of EBITDA, positive EBITDA before the end of the year. So as you get closer to that debt payment, even if the credit markets re- remain closed, and I think I'm, my, my sense, and I've been to this movie before, if it's another four weeks or whatever, it's, it's kind of immaterial. Um, when credit markets reopen, they reopen really quickly. And my guess is they'll get something done even before the end of the year, even though they've got you know, a year and change to get something done. So, but they're the, they're the beneficiary of these independent index-based contracts, and they've got a, uh, the OEMs like Ford and GM are paying up 
to get the components so they can ship cars so they can meet their numbers before the end of the year. And for Ford and GM to meet their numbers before the end of the year, Cooper Standard is going to do exceptionally well uh, on an operating basis. So disinflationary wave is building, even as investors anticipate uh, aggressive Fed rate increases. as this economist. This is Paul Ashworth from uh, Chief North America Economist at Capital Economics. Uh, I thought this was really interesting. He says, if we're right that inflation will fall back soon, officials will quickly pivot to much smaller hikes. We'll get a lot of inflation data in October before the November meeting. Uh, The continued drop in gasoline prices and easing food inflation will weigh on headline CPI over the next month or two, he said, referring to the consumer price index. He also pointed to signs of disinflation in core CPI data, which exclude energy and food. Despite the larger than expected 0.6% rise in core prices in August, there are mounting signs of disinflation there too, he wrote. Supply shortages have normalized. Um, I don't know if we covered last week. There used to be 120 ships waiting outside the port in uh, Long Beach. There are now like seven or eight ships uh, and going down quickly. So the supply chain issues are largely a rear view mirror thing. But he says supply shortages have normalized with the firm's product shortage is indicator now suggesting that, quote, core goods inflation could fall back to 2% before the end of the year from 7% in August. Let me tell you something. If we saw 2% down from 7% in the next months, they're not going up to 4.6% unless they're just they're not going they're not going up to 4.6%. Now, keep in mind, guys, as as hawkish as they've been. Uh, and as high as inflation's been, as of today, we're only at 3.0 to 3.25, which is historically very, very low. So whether they do that extra 150 basis points before year end, um, as much as they say they're on autopilot, I, I would think he's going to signal some flexibility, maybe in tomorrow's meeting, maybe if the market sells a little bit more down to the um, Uh, June lows, but they can't afford another economic crisis. Stock market crises lead to economic crises, and they don't have another multi-trillion dollars to bail things out. So as we approach those June lows, they're not going to want to let it break a lot uh, lower than that before they before they pivot quickly and before they uh, provide the liquidity needed. They're just trying to bring down demand. They're trying to create this fear. They're being very successful, uh, which is why we get to talk about what they're doing for an hour. but uh, so, so here's their table here. You can see it. And uh, Federal Reserve is aiming to bring down inflation to its 2% target range through monetary tightening that got away earlier this year, crushing uh, bonds and stock. So he's basically making a call that it could get there by the end of the year. I think that's an aggressive call. I do think it's going to be in that direction. Uh, and it's going to be better than most people expect. But uh, this is kind of aggressive and you know, these are some of the white swans that no one is thinking about right now in an environment, you know, precisely like this. Uh, okay, some stuff on China, Las Vegas sands and wind stocks rise on Macau casino recovery hopes. Uh, China has reportedly signaled support for Hong Kong's plan to ease COVID restrictions. Uh, Hong Kong's chief executive John Lee said he wants to create maximum room for the region to reconnect with the world. Uh, with reports suggesting its strict hotel quarantine policy for travelers could be among the first to go. So, look, they're doing the things. It took a little longer than expected. So you got to be humble. you got to be patient. But when you're, you have sound ideas, it's just a question of time. Um, uh, China's central bank cuts 14-day reverse repo rate, steps up cash injections. 
uh, was about 202 billion yuan, 256 million dollars through the seven-day reverse repos this week. So they're on it. I mean, they're basically opening, and you're going to see what I've been saying for four or five months that all the stimulus they're pumping in is going to be felt all at once. And we started to see signs of that in uh, August with the August uh, financial numbers. Um, Goldman Sachs prefers the U.S. stock market. Why? Alibaba is an exception. So basically, Goldman said that, uh, you know, basically, you know, Alibaba's gotten too cheap. Uh, okay. Uncertainty is just so elevated, be it domestic from all the regulations uh, or even abroad with the SEC auditing issue. He's talking about China. That said, we do think this sector has gotten very beat up. Uh, ba, 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 tough rules the rift. While there's been progress, there's a lot of bad news priced into the sector. I think that the scope for disappointment going forward is much less. I mean, that's about as positive as you could be. It's 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 not as bad, as, you know, as everyone. It's it, it's like they can't even they can't even get positive, and that's understandable. It's been you know six months of just a constant drumbeat of bad headlines. Um, and then there's single day, an e-commerce holiday in China that could make or break this year when it comes to online sales that could shift the dial for coming earnings season. So all of this thing, all of these factors, so they, they don't love it, the region, but they think Alibaba is exceptionally cheap. So that's from Goldman. China spent a record-breaking $8.3 billion on Russian energy in just one month as Europe shuns the supplies. Uh, so that's the other thing that's keeping inflation relatively subdued in China is they've got unlimited energy. Um, I know some people in, um, parts of Europe that are buying, uh, energy from Russia at a 38% discount. Those countries will do exceptionally well. Uh, they will contain inflation, uh, better than the rest of Europe this winter. Uh, certainly China and India has been doing that. So, um, uh, you know, they, they, as China reopens, they are in very, very good shape. We've been uh, having to sell our uh, strategic petroleum reserves. They've been filling them up at monster discounts. My guess is their discount is similar to those people that I've been in touch with that are getting, you know, uh, discounts, you know, 38% plus. Uh, and, uh, and that's a positive thing. So, uh, China reacts to Putin's speech, urges immediate ceasefire and dialogue. I think part of that is, you know, demand for Chinese goods has gone down uh, precipitously in Europe and a little bit in the U.S. as a result of the Ukraine war. And China doesn't like it. So they like buying the energy at uh, discounts and storing up their strategic petroleum reserves. They don't like uh, the impact it's having on their economy in an election year. So... Um, Xi is starting to put some pressure on Putin, and he has some leverage on Putin. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Again, another potential white swan. <clears throat> UN in, U.S. inspectors arrive in PwC KPMG offices in Hong Kong to review Chinese company audit records, sources say. So that happened this week. Uh, so that's all beginning as far as the delisting goes. China meets with Boeing, raising hopes for the 737 MAX flight resumption. So that's a big deal. White Swan, that's known, known as paying attention to. <clears throat> End of Hong Kong quarantines, a catalyst for stock rebound after 
uh, $1.2 trillion market, U.S. market route. Um, here is Hong Kong reopening announced along with pro-consumption policies. Hong Kong government announced ending its hotel quarantine for foreign investors without providing a date on when. Important to note, mainland government agreed to the reopening. Uh, this despite Hong Kong re registering over 5,500 new Hong Kong COVID cases overnight as zero COVID is clearly being watered down. This is very important. This is from the guys who run the K-Web ETF, Brendan Ahern. Uh, Macau casino stocks and travel plays like C-Trip were up 5.29%, uh, along with Hong Kong internet plays. Okay. Okay, here we go. Auto was a strong performer in both Hong Kong and mainland after the National Development and Reform Commission, NDRC, stated policies favoring big ticket consumption will be introduced. Auto and the EV ecosystem had a strong day. Uh, general appliance makers. Remember, 25% of all retail sales flow through e-commerce companies like Alibaba, JD, Pinduoduo, which should help them as well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, these things are, it, politicians always come to the right conclusion after they've exhausted all other possibilities. And I guess they're finally figuring out what they've done hasn't worked. Trip.com, which is a Chinese travel site, says China hotel bookings are surpassing pre-pandemic levels. It really didn't take long for them to come out of things. It, once the shutdowns eased, uh, once uh, there was a signal from the government that the game is back on, uh, people are, this is pent up demand. They're, they're just behind us is basically what it's coming down to. Um, total domestic hotel bookings was around 20% higher than the 2019 level in July. And we continued to grow over 2019 level in August and achieved hyper growth versus 2021. Cindy Zalfon Wang, chief financial officer at Trip.com, said during an earnings call on Thursday morning. So <laughs> while everyone's got their head under the, uh, under the sand in the U.S., China's uh, coming back online in a roaring way. Exclusive China sends regulators to Hong Kong to assist U.S. audit inspection that came out today. That was an exclusive from Reuters. Beijing has sent a team of regulatory officials to Hong Kong to assist the U.S. audit watchdog and with on-site audit inspections involving Chinese companies for people familiar with the matter set as part of a landmark deal be, uh, between the countries. Now, that's the good news. The other thing that I saw in this article that was helpful uh, was that it said... Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba, working papers actions that it would take most likely here we go the whole inspection process will last about eight to ten weeks at two of the four sources in line with comments by the u.s sec chairman gary gensler lawmakers last week so that would put us into mid-november right in line with their uh, china national congress so you you know as you get a pop you know for those of you we have some december derivatives will roll out We'll roll up and out as we get the next pop in the stock. Uh, the stock we just hold in perpetuity until it gets to our intrinsic value, which we've defined uh, many months ago when we got into the position. Uh, and that's that. Uh, Japan intervenes to support the yen for the first time since 1998, and they were modestly successful. You can see here the dollar yen. Um, okay, as hawkish as it gets, the article of the week, a walk back on the way, question mark. So... Following the pandemic crash and recovery, 
I gave Chairman Powell and Secretary Mnuchin a lot of credit for saving the world from a global depression by acting quickly and forcefully. As I take a look back, I think Mnuchin deserves all of the credit, and here's why. In December 2018, just after Powell was appointed as Fed Chair, he made the rookie mistake of saying quantitative tightening was on autopilot at the December 19, 2018 press conference. The stock market was already weak going into the conference, but his lack of market experience and savvy led him to believe a hawkish stance at the exact wrong time would make sense. He compounded a 7% pullback in the market to a 16.5% crash in just four days following his thought, thoughtless comments. So you can see here, he goes into the meeting, he said, talks about autopilot for quantitative tightening, and sure enough, the market sells off 10% into Christmas Eve. Um, Steven Mnuchin had to call the CEOs of the six largest banks and wrangle up ample liquidity to save a free-falling stock market on a Sunday, the day before Christmas Eve. He put this out, today I can be in individual calls, blah, blah, blah. If Secretary Mnuchin had not done that, Powell's amateurish comments could have completely crashed the stock market. The following Friday, Jay Powell walked back his comments at a public event by saying the Fed would be flexible with all of its policy tools, including the balance sheet. So we'll see. I don't know if the market sold, in, sold off enough today for him to be scared enough tomorrow to walk it back, or he does it a week from now or whatever. Um, but the market rallied back to new highs in coming weeks uh, following the intervention of Mnuchin followed by the walk back. So uh, Mnuchin saved the day in March of 2020 once again, the $2.2 trillion government re rescue, which delivered cash to individuals, small businesses, and giant companies, succeeded because of the program's chief architect, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Secretary Mnuchin worked with Democrats and Republicans to devise and pass the landmark stimulus bill. Stress was building in the credit markets, the lifeblood of the modern financial system. Trading of commercial paper a vital day-to-day -day source for major corporations was, was drying up. Investors were dumping municipal bonds, jeopardizing the ability of states and cities to borrow money and to pay employees. Mnuchin also encouraged the Fed to backstop a trillion dollars of commercial paper as well as some junk bonds. That was the key, by the way, that turned around the market. Uh, the Senate passed the $2.2 trillion CARES Act bill and the market soared. While Jay Powell learned his lesson of not being too rigid and tight from the December 2018, uh, he overplayed his hand in 2021 when he continued quantitative easing despite home prices soaring as much as 70% uh, in some areas in 18 months. Powell runs the Fed like I play golf. He crushes his driver, but he has no feel around the greens. But unlike me, he seems to have no interest in practicing his short game until it's too late and a colleague has to take over the steering wheel. Uh, unfortunately, Mnuchin is no longer there to tell him what to do. Perhaps Janet Yellen can step in and help steer the ship once again. Uh, she was a, a solid Fed chair. Now, Winston Churchill once said, generals are always prepared to fight the last war. Unfortunately, this has been Jay Powell's modus operandi. In 2021, he was too loose, despite the housing and inflation data signaling to pump the brakes a little bit. And he would have only had to pump a little bit at that point uh, to, to bring it in and, and get it under control ahead of, ahead of the curve. Um, but because of his near-death experience in December 2018, uh, he, he just refused to tighten at all. He was fighting the last war and messed up again. Now he's doing the exact same thing at the exact wrong time. He realizes he was too loose last year and he is oversteering the economy into a ditch. We've had two quarters of negative GDP growth so far this year, a technical recession. The tightening has already worked. 
Uh, he's 50 yards out from the pin, and rather than grabbing his lob wedge and sticking it next to the pin, he's pulling out his driver and pounding it 200 yards past the hole. The time to use the driver was on the tee in 2021, not when you're near the green and you've already destroyed demand. It looks like we'll get a third quarter of negative GDP for Q3. Atlanta GDP now has been falling off a cliff and looks like it did before printing negative in Q2. It's now at 0.3%, uh, down from over 1% just a few weeks ago. So if two quarters of negative GDP is no longer a recession, will three do the trick? My bet is it will finally be declared a recession somewhere around November 9th, even though it's already happened. Once Biden wakes up and sees how many seats he lost in the House and the recession is declared, they will move to replace Powell. I would anticipate there will not be much resistance on either side. Uh, it's been an abysmal failure, and that will be a catalyst for the markets moving forward. The alternative is he pivots beforehand and gets things in order and looks like a hero, but that, that would make too much sense. Uh, we won't hold our breath. Alternatively, if the markets don't get bid in the next day or so, i.e. today, tomorrow, maybe Powell learns from his last two failures and walks back his statements on Friday. He is scheduled to speak on Friday afternoon in a virtual conference entitled, quote, Fed Listens. It would be nice if he took a class called, quote, Fed Reads and figured out when you read the data, it points to deteriorating conditions that are not conducive to further tightening. Just look, look at the leading economic indicators. Proper interpretation would warrant a mission accomplished speech after already pushing the economy into recession and understanding that inflation unrelated to war and supply chain is following the negative growth tra trajectory on a lagged basis. The proper play would be to say, policy works on a lagged six to nine month basis and we've just implemented three emergency level rate hikes of 75 basis points each. 75 basis points is no joke. Uh, 75 of the last 86 have been below 50 basis points hikes since 1983, that is. So to do even one 75 basis point hike is a panic move. Two is super panic. Three is super duper panic. And that's what we've done. And what you should say is, uh, we got to give this you know, a minute to work. Uh, we're going to now wait and see how the data comes in before making any further moves. Instead of declaring victory and waiting for the data, he made a huge downgrade in the economic outlook yesterday, while at the same time making a huge upgrade in tightening expe expectations. This makes absolutely no sense. So he took GDP down for the whole year down to 0.2%, which is basically saying we're, we're in a recession uh, because we've already had two negative quarters of GDP growth. And then he took the Fed funds rate expectations up to 4.4%. You, you literally can't make this stuff up. And, um, you know, I put a big WTF question mark because it makes zero sense. They were doing the exact opposite last year, which we'll get into. Um, they will have to be walked back. The only question is whether they will require another crash to do so or if they panic at the June lows and walk it back. The one thing about the Fed is they want to avert another economic crisis that will cost, cost trillions to backstop. They simply don't have the bullets left. Much better to let inflation run slightly above trend than push the economy into a deeper recession. So, you know, we probably have about three and a half percent left. Uh, okay, the, the Dow, the industrials are up. Uh, so it looks like the market's up marginally today. So they, they've got a 4% cushion here before we get into really the danger zone. Uh, Fed forecasting track record, just as the Fed underestimated their inflation outlook for 2022 in 2021, they're now overestimating their inflation outlook for 2023 
in 2022. Let's take a look at their history of inaccuracy starting with September 2021 meeting and working forward to today, September 2022. This is not like opinion, this is empirical. So in September 2021, the Fed thought that GDP would be at 3.8% for 2022 and inflation would be down to 2.2% while they continued to ease. They were absolutely wrong. They thought 0.1% would be a good Fed funds rate with PCE inflation running at that point at 4.2%. Uh, their estimates were at 4.2%. It was, they took their estimates up to 4.2%. So they had 4.2% PCE inflation and a Fed funds rate at 10 basis points. And they thought that made a lot of sense. By December of 2021, they took their estimates up, expecting 4% GDP for 2022. The next two quarters were negative. Like how do you, in one quarter, it's like they're day traders. The market was going up, so they're like, well then GDP must go up. Like you can't make this stuff up. Like they've got 400 PhDs in that building and, and they like couldn't get it more wrong. Literally weeks before, not even weeks, like days before the next quarter, they upgrade, the, they have a GDP outlook of, uh, they upgrade from 3.8 to 4% and it came in negative and it came in negative the next quarter and it's probably coming in negative the quarter after that. And in that context, uh, they still had the Fed funds rate at, one tenth of one percent and they thought that maybe it would go up to less than one percent uh in the year uh then you can't make this up but in march they cut their gdp estimates from four percent to 2.8 percent so they nearly halved it after they got the negative uh, uh data and decided it was time to start aggressively tightening into a slowing economy and catapulted their fed funds rate expectations to 1.9 percent so so when the economy was rocketing, house prices were going up 70% in some areas. They're literally buying mortgage bonds to add fuel to the fire. And then when the economy starts to roll over, then they say, Let, let's, let's crush it and let's, let's absolutely destroy demand, which is exactly what they did. And now we're working on our third quarter of negative GDP growth. So by June, they didn't get any smarter. Uh, they figured they should collapse uh, GDP estimates now to 1.7. Remember, they were at four just a few months earlier and increased the Fed funds rate projection to 3.4%. They couldn't figure out how to crash demand any more quickly than to step on the gas of a car headed into a brick wall. And that's exactly what they did. And then finally, yesterday, they decided with GDP now near negative for the full year, their estimates are at uh, 0.2%, which means we're probably going to get the third quarter of negative GDP. Uh, their view is, let's see if we can completely destroy the economy by increasing the Fed funds rate projection to 4.4% by the end of the year. Um, and it's, it's like teeing up your driver on the putting green. It makes absolutely no sense when you're a couple of feet from the hole. So last September, the Fed anticipated GDP would be 3.8% in 2022 and the Fed funds rate would be 1.9%. Instead, we have negative GDP and projections of a 4.4% Fed funds rate by year end. 
There are only two positives that can come from this level of incompetence. Number one, they can panic and walk it back quickly. Or number two, they can panic and walk it back slowly. Time is running out as the credit markets are seizing up again. You're seeing credit spreads blow out. That's not good. The credit markets are closed. The IPO markets are closed. Just as Powell fought the last war in 2021, being too loose in the midst of inflation after his 2018 debacle of being too tight in a trade war, he's now making the same mistake for a third time, tightening aggressively into a declining economy. There is a reason you only get three strikes in baseball and you're out. Why the same doesn't hold true for Fed shares, I guess we'll find out soon enough if he doesn't pivot quickly. The good news is that market participants are positioned for the apocalypse. High cash balances and defensives, as we've covered in recent podcasts and videocasts, any reversal in policy outlook would force panic buying into year end. We'll likely know whether that is in the cards or not by Friday, by tomorrow. Here's positioning. Uh, positioning hasn't been this negative since the, the uh, 2008 financial crisis. The European debt financial crisis in the fall of 2011, you got a multi-year rally after that positioning. The uh, uh, credit markets crisis and oil crisis in 2015, monster multi-year rally after that. The pandemic lows. And now we're back at those levels. If you bought at any of these time periods, you made a boatload of money, even if it went against you for another few weeks or months, uh, you wanted to be a buyer, not a seller. Cash levels, the highest, uh, higher than the pandemic lows, higher than the great financial crisis. We've covered these. Uh, they're under the bunkers, you know. And uh, this last one that I continue to recover, uh, the recession expectations are highest since March 2009 and April 2020. The recession was already happening and the stock market bottom was already in. The recessions had not yet been declared, but they were happening. History doesn't rhyme, but it repeats. I continue to say this. I'm in the minority. Uh, it's possible this time will be the same, but we're cutting it close. So uh, here we are. Recession expectation, the highest September in 2022. The bottom, we'll see if June holds or if they've got to dip it below before Powell finally uh, gets off the pot. So unfortunately, Powell seems like he'll need a little more shock treatment again, like in December 2018, before he wakes up and pivots. We'll find out soon enough if he learned anything from his first two strikes and pivots before his hand is forced or the decision is taken away from him. So Friday, I joined Hanadoba on Cheddar TV to discuss the market outlook, positioning and history. This was the, we got more views on this interview than any other that we've ever posted on LinkedIn. So you definitely want to check this one out. There's a lot entrenched in that and you'll see it in the comments people are like wow you know i don't always watch your cheddar interviews but uh these are th this was absolutely amazing 10 minutes of stuff uh so check that out same thing with the cgtn africa uh with hannah viviers uh thanks again to hannah samuel Kantai, and lucia moki and over at cheddar ali thompson uh hannah doba ellie park lisa farkas and joe cole uh Again, one more data point that we look at, AAII sentiment. Uh, it's down to 17.7% bullish, 60% bearish. Retail sentiment is now lower than it was at the pandemic lows, uh, which were 20.23, and the great financial crisis lows, which were 18.92. So, uh, you know, you can follow the crowd, but you'd be, you'd, like, they'll put you in Wikipedia under the definition selling in the hole. Um, CNN Fear and Greed, also at Fear 31. And then the, um, let me just see where this came in today. The National Association of Active Investment Managers was at 33% equity exposure, but it flips over on Thursday afternoon. 
and my guess is it's lower and I'm correct, 29.59%. So any positive news and they'll have to chase hugely into year end um, and that's that. So moving right along, technology earnings. Uh, estimates for next year are down 3.5% in the last 60 days. The stocks are down anywhere from 10 to 20%. So that's uh, same with communication services, 6.9%. The stocks are down, some of them are down 40%. So that's uh, overpriced in. And then finally, we have a question from um, Paul Smith. Um, and uh, it's about Love, the Lovesack company. It's a furniture company. And I took a quick look. I, I like the way he's thinking about it. It's at $25 down from $95. Um, they are interesting. I mean, I generally avoid these type of companies that, you know, he's only got three or four years worth of numbers here. It's a relatively new IPO in 2018. So it's not my cup of tea, but I do like it. I mean, it, in, in terms of the growth, and this definitely warrants a lot more research, you know, the revenues have grown from, you know, 100 million in 2018 to 500 million last year. They have kind of specialized uh, furniture that like has speakers in it. It's modular. It has storage in it. And I've always kind of liked the furniture business, known a lot of people privately in the business that uh, did very well, huge margins in the business and um, uh, et cetera. The reason it's probably got the stock overhang is because it's related to housing in the short term. Uh, and until uh, we get some stabilization in rates and then the home builders start to get bid, this thing will probably be, uh, you know, trading with housing. So when you see the home builders, you can take a closer look at this. Home builders start to move. But you can see their gross margins have stayed in the mid-50s. It's, it's just a high-quality business. Um, their revenues are growing exponentially. I think they're trading at, like, think they were going to earn four dollars next year so they're trading at like five times forward um you know so people obviously are questioning the margins because the costs are going up so yeah four dollars next year so it's trading at about five and a half times next year's earnings um they're starting to generate meaningful return on capital in the mid-teens return on equity is in the mid-30s uh so it's on the right track and i think this one definitely wor warrants keeping an eye on and doing a lot more research. I think Paul did a good job uh, pinpointing this one. And, uh, you know, like I said, uh, probably not for me because there's not enough data and certainty in it. But um, I, I never go all into a position all at once or all out of all at once. So, you know, you could probably start to find spots to, to build a small position if this one was uh, interesting. Uh, Paul and uh, for everyone else as always this is opinion not advice go to hedge fund tips click on terms uh, with that said we're going to be back next week same time same place uh, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in in the meantime make it a great one and bye for now